Hello and welcome to another episode of the Weird, Wacky and Wonderful Stories podcast with your hosts, Shelley and Bella. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 47 of the Weird, Wacky and Wonderful Stories podcast. Hi everybody. We are so good to you guys. You're going to love this show today. You notice how the interesting ones are never just us. (laughs) There's always some bigger brainchild available to fill in the fluff between us. Well the thing is, is that we don't know all the answers, do we? You know, we're not the ones out there doing the investigation. We're just reporting on it. Yes, true. So... I think that we need people like our guest that's coming on today to actually enlighten us on some of the things that are actually going on in the world that doesn't get reported in the mainstream media. See, that's why you guys need to listen to our show. Yes, and the things that they discover and learn about don't happen in their front living room like ours. (laughs) We just sit here and talk into a microphone. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's true. But I've learned a hell of a lot since we've started this. Me too. I've got no answers. It's funny, isn't it? I've learned a lot, but I haven't got any answers. Well, that's why it's about unexplained and weird and wacky things. and Yeah. That's the point. Yeah. If there were answers, there'd be no need for us to sit here. <laughs> Actually, guys, I can guarantee that after listening to this show, even though Paul has got a massive amount of information that he's going to give us today, you will have probably more questions at the end of this than you have now. Okie dokie. Well, let's get on with it then. Paul Sinclair is a writer and researcher from the small fishing town of Bridlington in the United Kingdom. He's married to his wife Mary for 35 years and they have four grown-up children. Paul describes himself as a full-time researcher of all things unexplained. Through no choice of his own, he's been involved in unexplained phenomena from as long as he can remember. Now age 56, Paul devotes almost every day to his research, a job he openly admits gives little back for all his efforts. However... Due to his own lifelong experiences, he continues to search for answers to a truth that leaves no proof. Paul would describe his part in this as an unwilling participant and does not need to be convinced that beings from another sphere of existence are real. He has experienced the terrifying truth and has the scars to prove it. Whitley Strieber said of Paul that he does not know of anyone in the world who's been so affected by the visitors. From 2002 onwards, his research into ILFs, or intelligent life forms, consumed a large part of his life. He spent many years alone in remote locations trying to obtain proof of their existence. In 2014, Paul decided to write his first book, Truth Proof, The Truth That Leaves No Proof. His second book followed in December 2016, Truth Proof 2, Beyond the Thinking Mind. Both books have received high praise from many notable people in the field. Due in part to his honest approach and his unrelenting pursuit for answers, answers he openly admits may never come in his lifetime. Despite a lifetime of interaction, Paul never spoke openly about his own lifelong experiences with what he calls the night people until 2015. That was when he first began to tell his own story during a radio interview with Whitley Strieber. It was not planned. They were supposed to be talking about his new book. It just happened. He described the interview as if a cork had blown off a bottle. In many ways, it was his relief and explained why he was so deeply involved in the subject. Paul is currently writing Truth Proof 3, The Outer Nowhere, and a fourth book about his own lifelong encounters with beings he calls the night people. He has literally put himself on the front line to investigate these subjects for us. He's an amazing storyteller. Please do welcome to the show, Paul Sinclair. Thank you very much, Shelley, and it's wonderful to be speaking to you today. Uh, Looking forward to spending some time answering a few questions and we can work through a few, well, maybe work a few problems out between us. Well, your story it just includes everything, doesn't it? it? It's absolutely everything. I can't believe how much really of the paranormal phenomena, if you like, if you want to put it under that umbrella, this actually covers. So before we get started, I know that back in time you had some experiences when you were younger that involved nighttime visitors. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I can do. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I never really spoke about these, Shelley, until probably 2014. My wife knew. I mean, I'm 56 years old now, just to put the listener 
into some kind of perspective of, of what I'm about. But these things happen from childhood. I wouldn't say so to present day because the, the, the intensity of it, the, the sort of the biggest part of it was about 1994 to 98. There seemed to be a gap between teenage years and getting married. I don't know why, but in early childhood, I mean, I saw these things and you can't unsee. I know some people probably, I don't know, they probably not believe, but you've, once you've seen something like that, you can't unsee it. And I've woken up in the night as a child. I remember I've carried these memories now from early childhood to adulthood, they're real. They're not childhood imaginations. And I've got the scars on my arms, the scars on my back to prove it, where procedures have taken place. And it's no light thing saying it like that. I mean, I weren't going to speak about it at all, really. And then I was lucky enough to be asked to speak on Whitley Strieber's Dreamland. I think it was 2014. He asked me in 2006 and I declined. I just didn't feel ready. And Whitley knew a little bit about the story and... Well, it was like taking coke off a bottle. And and now I'd, I've no, I don't sit in public or with groups of friends talking about this. I'm talking to you about it because I can, obviously there's going to be an, an audience that's going to be interested, hopefully. But, you know, I mean, it's the ability of these visitors. It's the, the, I call them the night people because everything that seems to have happened to me has been under the cover of darkness. And when you, you know, when you wake up in the night, and I mean, an early childhood memory is waking up and, we had some like shiny curtains. I, I, they were actually made of fiberglass, which is you, you'd never get them now, I suppose. No. A shiny blue, silver, grey curtain in my bedroom, and I woke up and I'm looking at eyes in the curtains. What I perceived as eyes as a small boy, and you've no concept of life really. You're only your own life experiences, and and your, voca- your vocabulary is limited. And I've always said, to be honest with you, we haven't got the words to describe what we're seeing anyway. But to me, only thing I could sort of liken these eyes to are cow's eyes because I lived at the back of some fields where there were cows grazing all the time and they were, they looked big black eyes to me. Mm. But these, these things, these, these figures moved out of the curtains. I, I would, I'd hate to say they were grey aliens because I don't know, but they were around my bed and, I'd, and my bed was against the wall. So I can't understand that part of the process. This is what we're, we're, a, we're an absolute skeptic debunkers dream that people like <laughs> me, I suppose, because I'm saying they were either side of the bed, but my bed were at the side of the wall. I don't know how that works, but that is what I perceived. And they were real and, and I couldn't move. and I was screaming and I couldn't make a noise. But inside I was screaming and these things, I don't know, morning arrived. And I don't know whether the memory dissipates or whether, I don't know, I don't know whether, I, I, whether it's some kind of fear mechanism that blocks the memory, but you get fragmented memories. And you've, I've got little cameos of events like that throughout my life to the point where in 1998, and I may have got the date wrong here, it might have been 97, but I've got the medical records, but they're not in front of me. But I'm in bed, obviously married. I think we've got four children at the time and we've got four girls all left home now. Something had happened in the night. I recall a flash of light or something. But then I'm being told there's a bed spring turning in my back. That's the only thing, the message that's going through my mind as I'm laid in bed. My wife's at the side of me. And believe me, Shelley, there's no bed springs protruding through this bed. Oh, Mm. well, it's a different bed now, but there weren't. That's what I'm being told. And the pain's excruciating. And just lay still, there's a bed spring. And it's just turning like a brace and bit in my back. And that's what it felt like. And that's the the message I was getting. So uh, morning arrives and I've, I've gone to sleep in between this occurrence. And I just sit up on edge at bed. I don't know what people do. Some people wear pajamas or, you know, night clothes. I, I, summertime, I've got no clothes on. Sat outside at bed. Mary turns around and she says, Paul, I don't believe it. She says, what's the matter? She says, you've got three holes in your back. <laughs> now, we're not talking pinpricks here and scratches that have gone away. These were holes as big as half pences. I'd already been to the doctors intermittently, probably every three to six months. And the doctors, we've since found, because you can, now you've got your medical records, you can see that they're exchanging notes between themselves and sending these absolutely perplexed, and that was the word in the notes, by the punch hole lesions that keep appearing intermittently in this young man's skin. Uh, and that's the basis of the notes. So I went again and they did a biopsy. It revealed nothing apart from my analogy to grass pollen, <laughs> believe oh, right, it or okay. not. <laughs> However, they did, the notes do say, that it the 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 scars are, are all healing with what's called giant foreign body cells, which 
it's nothing to do with foreign bodies. But, but what it means is, and I'm no, I'm not medically trained people here, so, but my understanding of it is that a surgical procedure has taken place. However, my, I'm sure I can assure you, my wife's not been putting holes in my back, and the, the nature <laughs> of the, yeah, and the nature of the scars, that that's unusual as well, or, or the wound, because. I always try to find an analogy that the listener or anybody I'm talking to can sort of relate to. And they're almost, there's no blood, but you can see inside them the deep. And, and it's like, look, if you imagine a hole in the ice where the Eskimos or the Inuits stand to go fishing and you can see that little clear liquid, obviously, and that's what it's like. But there's no blood. Let's say they've dried, dry, uh, sorry, they've healed with these big, big bumps, but that, that's died off. That sort of that those experiences with what we call what I call the night people, they've tapered off, and, and I don't know why. But having said that, I think Wednesday night I woke up. And there's a headlight on a set of drawers in the room, and I woke up. There's a light on in the room, and the headlight had come on. Now I, we know that there's probably a fairly logical explanation to this, but I'm not attributing it to aliens or some spirit activity, but I do make notes of everything. And that was a strange occurrence just because there's no way that anybody had touched it. And it weren't on when we fell asleep. And at, I think it was 2.47, I sort of woke up and I thought, well, the room's lit up. And I looked and yeah, sure enough, headlights on. You know, all sorts of things. My, me and my wife have laid here and you, you know, you will know yourselves when your partner's awake and 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 Mary said, did you see that? And I, and I said, yeah, yeah, my eyes are closed, but the room's just lit up. And we've both been aware that the room has that, for a split second, has just lit up, illuminated, bang, with brightness. But we've not been aware of an experience and other than that. But these things have happened all my life. They're, they're far too numerous, and, and there's that many of them. I mean, I don't know how long you want to linger on that. You know, I mean, uh, I don't know whether there was some connection made as a at a very early age, because I remember waking up, or my father waking me up. We lived in this little village, Old Denaby, with the pasture at the back, like I've said, and about a mile away, there's a there's a town, a small town called Mexborough. Anybody can Google Earth these locations, or however you want to do it, uh, if you were so minded. And my dad woke me up, and to the right of the town was the Mexborough power station, and below the cooling towers of the power station, there's this huge, luminous ball that looked to my eyes like the moon. But I was probably only about five years old. I, uh, you know, obviously, five-year-olds don't document dates and, no, and everything like that. But and it woke me up, which was unusual because when I went, to, he was a strict man. My dad, to be honest with you, he was a man that he. Well, I've no qualms in saying it. It, it, it'd be smack first and ask questions later. Yeah. So mm-hmm. to wake me up, he must have been interested. To, he wanted me to see this. And we could see all the streetlights of Mexborough, which ran for I don't know, probably two miles to Swinton in the far left-hand corner, and this ball of light just looked above the rooftops. Obviously, we don't know what it was, and it just started to move, and it just slowly moved. It took ages because it got about halfway across the town, and my dad said, right, I'll leave you sort of thing, or I I can't remember exact words, but he left, and he left me watching this. And I wrote in the first book about what I called the, the intermind connection, as though there's some awareness sometimes to these things, if you if if you inadvertently see these objects and you're not supposed to see them, and then there's some kind of mental connection, you know, visual contact stimulates some kind of mental connection, and I do think it's a possibility. Just to jump from this light at Mexborough, the light forms that we've observed from the cliff tops of Bempton and Flamborough, and I've spoke to lots and lots of people, fishermen, rock anglers, who. Uh, to give one example, and I'll jump back to the next story, a rock angler set up and they were fishing on the clifftops early evening. And believe me, listeners, these guys fish on the edge of these sheer two to three hundred foot cliffs. God knows how you get a fish up from there, but that's what they do. <laughs> and he's looking out to sea, beautiful star-filled night, and he notices a star that he can't place. That's odd. It's a big, bright light. But no sooner has he noticed this star and sort of registered with it, then it's on top of him. That's his word. He said it was straight over the top. Well, obviously, it's not a star, but there was some kind of... In my mind, after he's told me this story, and it's a first-hand account from the actual man, he said, everything above me lit up like a, like, like a welder's torch. Everything became silver. 
He says it was blinding, brilliant white light. The grass, all the grass became silver coloured. He says, and it just lasted for a split second, and then it went like a firework. It just saw like a vapour trail, and it had gone. No sound. But I wonder, was there, was there some kind of intermind connection here mm. with this sphere of light that he perceived as a, a large, unusual-looking star up in the heavens? Simply wasn't, because as, as his mind connected with it and he's pondering what it could be, his his rationale was to think that suddenly it's above him. Yeah, everything's lit up. He's never fished on the cliff tops again, not alone. It's it's quite an amazing story, and I just wonder, going back to that night as a young child watching this sphere of light, I I think everything happened after that. Now it may be just coincidence, but I I believe uh, I'm thinking year would probably be 1967, 68. It could be a bit later, but it's and it could be just coincidence. But I just I just feel that everything started to happen after that. You know, and, you know, you wake up in the night and they're observing you. And sometimes you felt ex- extreme fear. I mean, most of the times I did. And other times you'd just observe and fall back to sleep. But, you, I, I've, but I've seen them. That's the difficulty. And I, I think what I jumped in on pre- uh, earlier was that I don't have the vocabulary to describe what I'm seeing. It's almost as though, I don't know, Shelley, and, and, and if, you, if you saw a new colour, Nobody else had ever seen in the world. You'll try and describe that to your yeah. husband. Yeah. It's, it's impossible. You haven't got the words. We, I don't, and we've not got the intellect either, I don't think. It's, this stuff is beyond us. And I don't think there's anything good comes out of these abduction scenarios. I know some people claim to have absolutely wonderful, exhilarating, life-changing experiences with, with these visitors. It will never like that for me. But it could, it could be... And I'm only saying could. These are only my imaginations, if you like. That, but it, but it could be that a similar intelligence is that in, work with all of us, and they might actually just be interested in emotion. And, and you know, I'm, they, we've obviously got something that they want. Yeah. And I cannot believe. You know, people are quick to jump on the words. Oh, these things are thousands of years in advancement to us, or potentially they are. And well, if they are, they'll understand us, and they'll know the ins and outs of us, and the. Uh, it, to my mind, the, the genetic genetic makeup of, of the human. So we must have something that they require. We must there must be something about the the makeup of mankind that they require, and it might be the farthest thing from what people are imagining, as in uh, genetics and trying to clone humans. I mean, it, it could be that, and I could be hundred percent wrong, but I do I do believe that human emotion plays a big part. In this, and I mean, that my part might have been the extreme fear that were created, I don't, and and other people, it might be the extreme elation and 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 love that they emit. I don't know, and I could be backing up the wrong tree here, but strange things happen when when we are placed in different situations. Yeah. Uh, my ex- an example of that would be when somebody passes away, you tend to concentrate on that person. You're thinking about them. They're in your mind. The you're in a different emotional state, and things happen. People claim that they've seen probably they call it a ghost if you like, or, or things move, and you're setting yourself up in a different emotional state. And I believe that these these visitors, for want of a better word, tap into this. Well, and you know, it's interesting because if they are that scientific, that they have advanced sort of capabilities in that way, that they're able to come to us even is advanced because we can't go to them it would almost make sense that they wouldn't have as much emotion as a human would because you know their minds maybe don't think that way so maybe that's what they're trying to figure out more analytical rather than emotional exactly whereas humans are everything just about that you do in your life is driven by emotions that that's that's correct and it's it's a good way to look at it because i mean it, it i mean obviously all we're doing is surmising because none of us really know but you you, you could be right and and I, I wish i wish i had a better answer i wish i could describe it to people in in some other way i mean i i say this and then i contradict myself i realize that i do that by saying i've got scars so they must have taken something there must have been a reason. I, d- I don't know the reasons. I mean, I do. I have listened to people, and I've been to a conference and listened to uh, people talk about how they perceive these these other life forms and the the star children and our star seeds and all this. I'm not downplaying 
these people. They, they've got a valuable role to play, but I just find it difficult to accept that they know the answers because at the end of the day, they're not telling us anything that we can relate to. It's, it, it's, a, it's a conundrum. It's a, it really is a difficult one. I think what I like about your work, Paul, is that you, even though you've had these experiences yourself, I think you still label yourself to some degree as a sceptic. And so you still look at it from that point of view. And in fact, you know, what I find interesting is that you're not coming forward saying, I've found proof of aliens or, you know, there's a certain race that lives on in the Pleiades and, and what have you. You're saying, this is what's going on in these areas and we'll go on to what's happening around your area in a minute. But you're actually looking at the evidence and you're saying, this is what's happening. And when I find an answer, I'll let you know. But up until now, I'm still, <laughs> I'm still collecting what I can. That's absolutely right. And I, I, that's a question that I, I spoke to Christopher Turner, who, you know, we're making the documentary Bringing Down the Lights about se- several days ago. It's impossible to say A is responsible for B. We, we know that there's a mechanism involved. We know that we know that the lights are seen off the coast and we know that people go missing. You know, people have vanished along, along eastern, the eastern North Yorkshire coastline, vanished without trace. At similar times to when these spheres of light have been seen, but I am never going to say that's why and they're responsible for the vanishings because I simply don't know. And it would be, it would be wrong of me to do that. But all, all, you, all you can do is gather the evidence up and, and, and sort of lay it all out there and let the reader, let the listener form their own opinions without solid proof if somebody comes forward to me and says I was walking with my husband along the cliff tops and we saw this sphere of light and suddenly it was over the top of us and then I'm just on my own then you think well you've got something here this 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 you know obviously to be sensational as well but that's never happened no nobody's come back nobody's come back to tell us basically all we can do is just document it yeah I, I'm not I'm not keen on saying I have the answers because I don't it is unusual, though, that a lot of these happenings occur in the in the concentrated areas. And I've, I've often wondered, and I've said this before, if it's the area that's releasing or emitting this this soup of strangeness, this exotic science, or if the area is attracting it from somewhere else. But then we've got to honestly believe, I mean, that's one thing I do say, and one thing I do believe, that location is key. Mm. The repeat areas are time and time again. These are the places that should be studied. These are the places mm. that science even should spend time studying, the areas that are able to produce the unexplained phenomena. Even if there's years in between the appearance of these things, you know that there's an high probability that it's going to happen. In, just for instance, in Bempton, the, the people go missing around that area. The light forms are seen. Big cats, alien, alien to the, the UK. So I don't mean alien as in from space. Yeah. No, uh, but big black cats are seen and beige cats that shouldn't exist in our area. And we don't see the evidence of big cat kills. So why are we seeing them? Is this, are, are we? Are, are these areas some somehow? These repeat areas, are they weak areas where, uh, I don't know, r- running very close to another dimension where at, at times it sort of overlaps and allows these things to slip through or be seen? It's just theorising because we, we, had, we don't have the answers. Well, if I can take you back to, I think, a good place to start in relation to what's going on around the Bempton area and what have you. Tell us about an occasion when I think you were walking with your wife to take something to a vagrant. Oh, yeah, yeah, but we... Is this guy's lived in Dane's Dyke for 11 years. Lovely man. It was New Year's Day, and we decided to take our little dog for a walk, and we were going to go to Dane's Dyke, so we pulled up there, and if we go, my wife always takes him some food. So we took him a bit of food, and he said I'd, we'd just missed the police. So we asked him why, and they wanted to ask him, because of the nature of where he lives, this secluded area, if he'd, if he'd seen anything unusual in the area, meaning a, a large, unusual animal, and they, they particularly stressed a un, very unusual-looking dog. And he said he hadn't, just sort of went on his way. And oh, But, but as a parting shot, the police told him that 10 sheep had been killed around Bempton in the weeks previous. He told me this, and that got me thinking, and I, I decided I, want, I wanted to find out where these sheep had been killed. So did a bit of digging and I did eventually find the farm and I found the farmer and went and spoke to him and I asked him if I could help him investigate what were killing the animals. Nothing to do with paranormal at this point because I'm, I'm quite happy to look for a logical explanation and then if we've exhausted that, 
Republican look for, to the illogical. So, and he, he agreed. I, I don't mean reluctantly, but he agreed. He, he, he was sort of okay. I had to gauge him at first. I'm not, you know, I'm not sure what he knew about me. So my first job was to ring all the livestock auctions and livestock houses around eastern North Yorkshire to find out if any more had been killed. And it turned out that some had been killed 16 miles up the coast in similar fashion. And some had been killed about six miles away. And I've since found out some had been killed at Flamborough, three or four miles away. And But these farmers don't talk to each other. I don't mean they're hostile to one another, but they're very secular, these people. They, I don't know. I mean, I, where we used to live, it were mining communities. And they, they're very into their own kind of people, if that makes sense. Their own clubs, their own sort of lifestyle. And the, the farmers are a little bit like that. But we found 24 miles down the coast that, at Sprotley, it's been happening there as well. It weren't just 10 sheep. I mean, we're over 50 sheep now that have been killed in the area. And I've been finding these animals. I mean, they've been removed. They were removed on December the 6th, not because of the killings, but because of lack of nutrition in the in the actual area of uh, the ground. Because they'll be coming back in spring. But what's interesting is whatever's killing them is not consuming the flesh. I'm sorry for sounding so graphic here, listeners, but... It's removing their ears and removing their eyes in most instances, or one eye and one ear, sometimes two. If it takes a leg, and the farmer noticed, noted this, and I, it, I didn't at first, it always takes a left leg. Really? Always the left? Yeah, always a left front leg. And I found one on, and I'm pretty good with dates, that's why I've still got it in my head, and I found one on November the 11th, 2018, that were interesting but graphic but i may as well explain i took a guy called les drake with me from digital creations he's a, he's a cameraman we didn't go looking for that we were going to do a bit of drone work but it turned out too windy but sure enough we found a sheep carcass we didn't expect to find that one because i usually go up at about 4 30 in the morning i need to find these animals when shortly after they've been killed because otherwise we're not getting a true picture because fox and badger do find them and they will feed on the carcass and that distorts the evidence of what's happening. I mean, the ears are sliced off, the eyes are removed, there's no trauma, where there's just a black hole. You can't t- take an eye out without blood, but that's what's happening. The muzzles are usually stripped of skin, but if, obviously if they're left for a day, two days, you know, the crows find them, the rook, badgers, the foxes, it's a free meal. But we found this sheep, and the wool, I don't know if anybody's ever took time to look at a sheep we obviously you can visualize one but it usually stops the wool stops at the back of their ears and this this poor animal it just looked like a tube the wool and the neck right down to the breastbone where it would be attached inside there was just a 12 inch long tube of wool and everything had gone the head the neck everything and it, and you could see the internal wow. organs looking down inside i'm sorry listeners if that sounds graphic but i'm trying to paint a picture here of how unnatural this is that's happening so that's what what that's basically what's happening to the to the livestock but it's not just affecting farm animals i've found roe deer with absolutely pristine with monstrous holes in the sides and the only thing missing is half a liver harbor porpoise you know the small dolphin about Mm. three or four foot long they're found on the they've been found along the water line now there's a lot more than i've got photographs of it just comes as a surprise to me. It was a rock angler that sent me a picture of one. And then I've, I've sort of put the word out and people have sent me various pictures and told me that they've found these. And these, these poor marine mammals are above the waterline. They just look like blow-up toys. They're absolutely pristine. They're like a rubber toy, to be honest, apart from one thing, a monstrous up to three-inch round hole through the jaw. You know, and you think to yourself, that's probably happening quarter of a mile from the affected area where the livestock is is being mutilated. You could think to yourself, is this man? But I don't know how a man is going to catch the porpoise. You know, mm. that's a marine Yeah, they're bloody mammal. quick, that's aren't they? They are, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, when, and when you think about, the, you know, a, a sheep, it, to be honest with you, I've spent so much time up there in the morning. They treat me they, like the shepherd. They know me well <laughs> and they, they like me, to be honest with you. And, and I, I know now, I know when, so, I can near enough predict if there's been a kill. Because I know the sheep and I know when they're all huddled up in one area that something's affected them during the night. And you'll find one. Most of the time, I mean, you're not finding them every day. I could walk there for a week and there's nothing and then walk there for two weeks and then find two consecutive days. It's, it's very strange. But, we, we, you know, you could think, oh, is it some sick individual doing this? 
because that's the only thing I can think that could slice the ears off, uh, unless it's something paranormal. But then you then you ask yourself, it's killing roe deer stags. You mm. would catch a roe deer stag. I could imagine catching a sheep in the night, although they're pretty evasive. If you know what I mean. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's anything that knows it's going to be potentially attacked or chased is going to get on its toes and run away. Especially, and they've had a, there's a history on this particular area of, of the animals. They, they must have been witness to this, these horrific events that's been happening to part of their flock. Mm. But a roe deer stag? No, you're not going to catch a roe deer stag. I mean, and, and I've spent time with the carcasses of these stags, literally turning them, lifting them, looking for bite marks, looking for puncture wounds, looking for any other sign of trauma, and it's not there. And I noticed that you say in your accounts as well that when you find something like a stag, the wounds are on the underside of it, the way it's laying. That's correct, yeah, which is surprising, isn't it? I mean, they've actually got one in my mind I can see now that it had actually, it looked like its ribcage had been exploded from the inside. Now, mm. you you typically think that a predator would go for the softer areas to access the food, the point of least resistance. Yeah. But it doesn't seem the case with these. It's it, it, And it'll just go straight through the ribs. And the ribs have just been annihilated. Now, what we did, Chris, Christopher Turner came up when we were making the Bempton Phenomena, that short documentary that he put together. And we brought a... It brought with him, we brought all sorts of things, uh, thermal imaging cameras, because we'd been accused of not taking the right equipment. But basically, when we made the documentary, we didn't actually realise that we should be saying, oh, we've got thermal imaging cameras, we've got trail cams, because we had all this equipment, but we've made sure that in bringing down the light, we will be documenting all this. But on top of it, uh, I think it was Steve Mira, who runs Phenomena magazine, had, had given Chris an attachment to go onto his phone, like a, a little Geiger counter. Now... Please don't place too much faith in this, but I'll just explain. We carried it around with us for two days on, and nothing happened. And I said, take it to where the deer kill is. And I directed Chris Turner. I mean, we put it where all the other kills were, and nothing happened. This thing went off the scale where the deer kill had been with the ribcage that was exploded. Mm. And the deer kill was found in May the 15th, 2018. And this was months later. So... Well, quite surprised, to be honest with you. And it, it literally went off scale. We moved away from it. It went down and then it went off the scale again. So we were a little bit dubious about using a phone app Geiger counter as some some means of displaying results of our research in bringing down the light. So we bought a Geiger counter. We've got a, quite a good reputation, this machine. So we bought it and I've used it. Now, I didn't get the same results. We only bought it about eight weeks ago. I didn't get the same results as what we got with the phone app Geiger counter, but I'm told that the radiation does dissipate. But it went to over 30 on the on the scale of uh, parts per million in this, this little concentrated area where everything else... And what's the baseline? What would a baseline reading be? As a general rule of thumb, and I'm no expert with Geiger counters, this would just read in, in between five and eight. Right, OK. You know, ticking away at five and eight odd times it would go up to nine and then drop back down and that's what it's been doing all the time Mm. but i just visited the area where the deer kill was where we got this sounding result with the phone app geiger and it went up to 30 now we recorded it we record we actually filmed the phone app one and i've recorded that one as well and it's not as i now it's strange it's not as i now either but maybe Whatever were there is dissipated. Yeah, maybe a weak example of the research, but we have, we literally have thrown everything at it from, like we said, from thermal imaging cameras to night vision to trail cams. I mean, there's there's a voice phenomena that I've only observed once in that particular part of the wood. That you know, we've got these fields, and then there's a there's woods running along the side of them. And the farmer had told me that I said, "How's things?" I said, "Everything okay?" He says, "Well, I heard somebody talking last night." I says, "What do you mean?" And he says, and he stood again, he's decking, and at the side of it is a crop of corn. I says, where? He says, there. And the decking's higher than the corn, or elevated. He says, about 20 foot away. He says, it were electronic, almost like a robot. He says, and they could hear it. And he says, I was sat in, on my own, in, and sort of, it unnerved me, because it was sort of 20 foot away. And, you know, I mean, nobody can crawl through the corn. There's no evidence that the corn had been disturbed or anything. I took that on board, and... I brought a digital Olympus digital voice recorder up and with an old tape on. You can everybody can picture them like you, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. don't you? Yeah. Took a microphone on it and we left it playing and we we caught 
voices, which I've got. Well, you know, um, uh, we thought we'd only got them on the Olympus, uh, on the tape-based one, but we do have them on the Olympus as well. And they're quite disturbing. It sounds like somebody screaming and saying, help. Uh, now, what's strange is we're in the middle of nowhere. We're absolutely in the middle of nowhere here. This is, you've got the North Sea in front of you. You've got miles and miles of fields all around you. It's a private area. So that was that little bit. And then I sort of ventured across the field early one morning. It would just get it. I usually do a box section of the field looking to see if there's any carcasses, anything's been killed, and then enter the wood. And I'd entered the wood. It would just get in light. And there's me and my little dog, Wolfie. Far less intimidating than the name suggests. He's, he's like a rabbit. <laughs> so, so we're in the wood, and we, I'd only probably gone in about forty or fifty yards, and the bracken was high. You know, the, the you know the ferns, the yeah. bracken, in probably about I don't know three or four foot high. Behind me, I heard I heard the talking, I heard the voices, almost electronic. Now I was unnerved. I really was because I have to walk back the same route, and I, I sort of looked across. I could see the farmhouse. And there's a field of what's called borage in between the wood and the farmhouse. That's a purple mm-hmm. crop. Yeah. And and I thought, shall I climb fence? I really considered it and walk through the crop. And that's not me. I don't want to disturb people's crops. So I suppose you might call it plucking up courage. I I, I were I were nervous because it were I didn't imagine the voices. I heard the voices, and they were there was either men in that bracken or there's some other phenomena that created it. Eventually, though, I walked back, and I, got, I was relieved when I got back onto the field. And <laughs> I can't explain it. I, I just can't explain what it is. There's, uh, but we've got all manner of the unexplained manifesting in this area. I mean, I don't know what we're like for time here, but just, just to briefly, when the farmer first noticed that something was wrong, and this is, this is an interesting bit, on, in July of 2017, a guy walking on Cliff Lane, which is, features in a lot of stories in the book that leads to the cliffs at Bempton. It's the only way to get to them, really, this single-track road. He rang me and said that in, during that morning, on his morning walk, he'd found a, a roe deer carcass in the hedge bottom that had recently been killed, but it was off the road. It was a good distance away. But the interesting thing about it was it had a three-inch round hole straight through it, straight through its side. So he told me about this carcass. I went up the following day to try and find it and I couldn't find it and I let that go that was just a story but then some time later I like I've told you I established contact with this farmer and I asked him when he first realized that something unnatural was happening I dated the deer carcass so I think you're going to know where we're going with this and it mm. were in my diary and I'm stood in his kitchen and he's saying well I'll tell you now he said I've got a run for the sheep he says um, you know he puts a foot bath in it to treat the feet and everything else he says there's a funneled area with a gate on and we let six sheep in it and they do this treatment and then there's a gate at the other side we let them through into another area he says but it holds six sheep nose to tail he says it's hell of a job getting them in they don't want to go in they know they don't like it he's got two dogs and he says it's difficult so at any road the story is that he arrived one morning and this run the old six sheep nose to tail had 30 in it now i'm not exaggerating he said 30 not 13 wow he said but they were on top of one another they were hanging upside down they were on the sides it was he says it was just carnage he says i can see it now he says i just can't believe what i was looking at and these panels are like corrugated steel he says and i, I unpegged them and untangled the sheep and and Four of his sheep were dead. Uh, heat exhaustion, suffocation, he, he assumes, or just sheer fear, they've died of whatever. There were no wounds on them. But something had either driven them or placed them into that area during the night. But the, the point I'm getting at here, listeners, is I had my diary in my hand. And it can, if you lie, it can come back to bite you on the backside. So if the farmer ever listened to this, even though I'm not revealing his name, and I was lying, he could become vocal and say that's not what happened. I was stood in his kitchen. And I said, what date was that? And he's looking through this list. He went, March, March, June, June, oh, I'm doing it now, the 28th, June the 28th, 2017. I literally opened the pages of my diary and I showed him. I said, what does that say? Rodia Stag found June the 28th, three inch hole inside Cliff Lane. I can see that farm from Cliff Lane. Wow. Now, mm. do you, do you, to me, this is the part that, interests me and now i like i've said before and like i'll probably continue to say i can't say that the two are linked but i think there's a strong possibility yeah you know what i mean definitely yeah and you look at the fact that like you said whether they 
were chased in there, whether they were placed in there, whether they ran in there because they felt safer in there, because they were fearful of what was going on. If you can see it from the other farm, then theoretically they could have seen it. And if it was something that was illuminated because of these lights that are reported, then yeah, it could well, have been. My, my gut feeling is that whatever killed the deer is responsible for whatever happened to the yeah. sheep. Mm. Uh, it, it's happened on the same date within... It, it's less than a mile of, yeah. of each other on a, on, on, in a very remote area. Whether the lights that, are, that display out at sea are somehow responsible for any of this, I don't know. But they're always seen at, at similar times. I mean, there, there's lots of strange things occurred. I mean, I went, I went up there obviously looking to find carcasses or seeing what was happening early this year. And on the way back, the farmer's walking across to meet me. And he told me that a young roe deer stag was, had been killed during the night near what, what were called this kissing gate. I'd missed it because I entered the land from a different side of the field. So we went over and looked at this stag and this muzzle was stripped and its eye were removed, one eye. But what were interesting, because it's so remote, the farmer said to me, last night I was laid in bed listening to music and there were a light on my back wall moving about fast. I said, what do you mean, a torch? He says, no, I don't think so. And I said, well, didn't you get up? He said, well, no, not, not really, no. And I can't, that, that, that puzzles me, <laughs> that perplexes me. I would, mm. be, I would jump up and be looking. But he's adamant that it wasn't a torchlight. I don't know, it's, it's almost as though people... People are blind to the phenomena. It's like we're not going to believe that this stuff is happening because it's out of our comfort zone. Where there must be a logical explanation. And I'm, I've been looking into these killings of the porpoise, the deer, the, the livestock, the badgers. We've even found badgers that have been found in unusual circumstances. And I haven't got an answer to it. I mean, I don't think it's the work of man. I think the porpoise ruled that out. Yeah, yeah. On, on saying that, you've found as well, I believe, in the area, some mysterious vehicles, trucks, I believe. That's correct. I first became aware of them in it was July, March, May, June, July the 25th, 2017. A guy called David Hind called me up and he said to me, Paul, he said, I think you want to get onto the back road between Benton and Flamborough. There's some unusual trucks. Well, we'd already seen military trucks, but not close enough on the cliff tops when we'd been up trying to film the light forms, but we knew they were military. Well, sure enough, I got pictures of these trucks. They were Ram pickups, uh, the big American thing. Dodge Rams, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, Dodge Rams, yeah. And they'd got a great big green box on the back of them that just spilled over the side of the pickup by probably six inches and, uh, and hung over the back as well, big enough to get two or three people inside, and a, a huge dish on the top that looked like a satellite dish, but a very big one, uh, all painted green with hazard warning signs on them. And sure enough, they were there. July the 25th were an interesting day because I got the pictures of these rams and then I went up onto the clifftops with radio show host Bob Brown. He wanted to go have a walk up around Bempton, so we did that. And uh, whilst we was there, the pickups were around. But I got a phone call, and this guy says to me, I want to tell you my daughter's seen a UFO, a black tubular object with a line down, a red line through it. And I'm listening to this phone call, and Bob's there as well. And then he says, but there's something else unusual. And this was, he was reporting this sighting from a place called Garton on the Walls, which would have been about 12 miles away from where I was stood on, as the crow flies. And something else unusual, he said. I said, what's that? He says, there's a big American pickup parked off-road with a big <laughs> box on it on the back. I thought, wow, and we've got one here as well. And they were also pulling a big, uh, gener a big generator. So we'd got that sighting. The same day, the 25th of July, the very same day, I'm looking out to sea as we're about to walk back. Now, Bob's 72, so not as quick on his feet. And I looked out to sea, and I can see three points of light under the sea, which, listeners, I've got photographs of, and I've put, I have put them on Facebook and different places, so it's not, I, I can show you the photograph, but I never can. It's the real, and the, and the livestock. Just, I've, I've been reluctant to place it. It's so graphic, the pictures of the livestock. YouTube wouldn't allow us to put them on. Do you know what I mean? But there's three lights out at sea. They're, they're probably about a mile out, and obviously three of anything is going to form a triangle, but it looked like a large triangle. I showed Bob, and if we were looking straight out, they were out and to my right, and Bob couldn't quite make them out, but he was waiting to have a cataract operation. So I said, look, Bob, I'm going to get down the cliffs as fast as I can so that I'm not just looking out and to my right. I want to look out level where they are to get a closest possible vantage point. And I did. Ten minutes later, Bob catches me up. He can see them now. So we both got photographs of them. Incidentally, my Canon camera didn't take as good pictures displaying the light as what Bob's mobile phone did. How that works, I don't know. <laughs> but, 
but we've got the light. Yeah. And Bob noted and I noted that there was sort of steam coming up from the patches of light. And it's not dark. It's not. This is daylight. So, sorry, this is, this is steam coming up from under the water? Under the, the water. The lights are below the water. And, and like I said, this is daylight. We're talking July 25th and we're talking evening time, but still light. And we watched them for 20, 25 minutes and they just slowly drifted out as one thing. I don't know whether it were one thing underwater or three separate things, but they just drifted out and they're gone. We turned to our right, looked down the cliffs towards Flamborough Head, and these cliffs, as I say, at the ice point, the 400, but where we were looking, they're probably two and a half hundred feet, and a huge rectangle of light lit up on the cliff, just above and just below, if you know what I mean. It weren't on the top of the cliff, and it, it were just below it, and I'd, I'd put it at the size of a container, but I, you know, like a lorry container. Mm. Huge thing, literally for a blink, for all, a Bob burst out into swear words. <laughs> you know what is that bleep bleep and it, it, if i if i'd have turned and seen it and bob had turned and second after he wouldn't have it was just a blink but all the time these military trucks were around i don't know what kind of energy could could gener be generated to light up a cliff face like that in mm. daylight and just we didn't see no beam of light or anything it's just a weird area i'm not trying to uh, i'm not trying to make this area sound sensational these things are happening and you know, but once once again, these places are all over the world. You know, you've got not unlike the Skinwalker Ranch and other places. These places of eye strangeness exist all over the world. It's probably the fact that I'm sort of full time researching now that I'm actually highlighting the high strangeness of the area. I'm fortunate that I can devote a lot of time to it, and I do love it to be honest. You know, mentioning the Skinwalker Ranch, when you look at that case, the perception is that there's lots of different things all coming together to produce all of these things that are going on it's never tied to one solution if you like for want of a better word i do tend to talk about like you said earlier maybe dimensional uh, some kind of dimensional rift or whatever do you think that maybe there's a similar thing going on around your area around the bempton area absolutely that's why i said earlier that i don't know whether these areas attract it or or it, it's, it's exiting from the area because of some kind of interdimensional opening, call it a portal if you want. I don't know, I don't, but I don't know how, what mechanisms are at work. All I know is that, like you've just said, there seems to be many, many different variants of unexplained phenomena happening in these locations. You know, a, a few miles away at Flixton, well, probably 10 or 11 miles as the crow flies there's probably the oldest documented case of a werewolf in 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 england the flixton werewolf and once again it seems concentrated to the area of flixton and and the, the surrounding lands of flixton so why why is this thing only being seen there because for the life of me i don't believe that there's something transforming from man to beast but i, I but on the other side of the coin i do believe that the people that are coming forward and saying they've seen this thing are telling the truth because there's too many people with nothing to gain except ridicule telling me these stories. The farmers especially that you deal with, a lot of them, they're quite a close-knit community, aren't they? And I would assume, and I, th I think that I've heard you mention this anyway on, on some of the other shows that I've heard you on, is that the farmers are actually almost trying to keep you a little bit quiet about this. They don't want media, they don't want loads of people coming in, they don't want animal rights people suddenly turning up on the doorstep because of these things that are going on with the animals. So do you find sometimes that you are kind of getting some kind of pushback from the locals? Definitely. They don't want me up there. They, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate that one farmer's got a bit of time for me, and I, like I said, I, I genuinely mean it when I said I've been up most mornings in between half four and half five when these, the livestock's been on the land. And it's done him a favour because he has to visit his livestock every day, and he's got them all over the place. And I'll ring at 7.30 and say, there's no need to come up, everything's fine. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you see? So, But, but uh, uh, the other farmers in the area are aware of me, and I don't think I'm the favourite person. Let's put it that way. And I've not done anything wrong to them, but they, they, they're very secular. Then they, they, they want, they'd run everything. And, and it's their right if that's what they want to do. I'm not, I'm not calling them, but they want, they want, even if they know anything, they won't share it. They'll never tell anybody. So there's a potential that really this thing could have been going on for even longer than the stories that you've got and that within their community they've kept it quiet. 
Yeah, without a doubt. And it has been doing. Uh, and, and I'll give you one example. I don't know how we're fixed for time, but I'll give you one example. I've been chasing a story now for years. So I, when I had my old website in, back in 2005, ILF UFO, Intelligent Light Forms, I think it's been archived. There's still bits on internet if people, it's nothing exotic, but if people want to have a look, you'll find it. But I put a little few paragraphs on and I wanted information about XS894. And that was an, an RAF lightning that crashed. The pilot was an American exchange pilot called William Schaefner. And it was allegedly pursuing a UFO. And it crashed 10 miles off Flamborough Head, which is very close to where I'm sat now. It's very close to where everything's happening. Lots of things on internet. And I recommend everybody listening who's got an interest in the UFO subject, look up XS894. It's a brilliant story. So anyway, it caused a lot of upset. I know it did for the family when people were saying it was UFO related and a retired police detective called Tony Dodd who wrote a book called Alien Investigator. He researched it thoroughly and he got slated for connecting it to the UFO related information. But I found out that lots of things were happening around September 1970. Not, not that how my research works is I'm not saying that is responsible so it was a UFO but the RAF Marine launch based at Bridlington which is just a few miles away from where it crashed a few days before had to be beached on North Beach because an unknown object ripped a 12 inch by 20 foot hole in its hull now Tony had never found this out the previous investigators had never found any of this out I found it out and I wrote about it in truth proof uh, with the newspaper cuttings of the day that, that, that sort of backed up my words. Now, that doesn't mean that a UFO were responsible for bringing a lightning down, but it's an un highly unusual event. Mm. Two days before the lightning crashed, speedboat very close to the affected area was struck by something beneath the water, and its five op occupants were left in the water clinging to the wreckage. It disintegrated. Once again, does not mean a UFO was involved, but an unusual event, all sort of culminating together. Now, the former lighthouse keeper at Flamborough gave me an envelope containing various UFO reports, things that he didn't vocally say that he'd, he'd observed when, whilst he was a keeper because he thought people would think he was mad. And one of, the, on one, one of the reports was that a UFO had landed on the cliff tops at Flamborough, and he, he, he thought it was between 1966 and 1970. He'd, he'd, done, he'd been told about this, and he told me the piece of land it had landed on. And, and alleged people had seen it. So I'm thinking, crash, this is an interesting story, but it, here's where it ties in with the lightning, and people in Flamborough have known about this for years. The former village butcher of Flamborough, I'll not say his name, I'm going to record him next week, actually. He's going to let me record him on film for the documentary. He's come forward, and I spoke to him last week. Uh, I recorded him with a digital recorder, but I want to get him on film, listeners, that's what I'm meaning. And he says to me, I was a schoolboy at the time, a flying saucer landed on the clifftops at Flamborough, and he knew nothing about the, the lighthouse keeper giving me this information. And I said, what year? Do you know what year? He said, I can tell you exactly. He said, it was 1917. It was early September. Now, how interesting is this? The, the lightning aircraft crashed September the 8th, 1970. I've got, a, I've got a lighthouse keeper telling me about this alleged landing of a UFO on the clifftops, but he couldn't give me a date. Now we've got a date to tie it together. But what's interesting is he says when he was working as a butcher for a lot of years in Flamborough, butcher's shop, he said, he said it came up once. He said, I ended up talking in, in shop about it. And two old ladies said, how do you know about that? The landed spaceship. And he said, oh, I've been told about it by, I don't know, we'll call him Fred Jones. I guess I don't know the name he's talking about. And she, the two old ladies looked at him and said, we don't talk about that. We don't talk uh, about anything. Really? Interesting, isn't it? You know, yeah, yeah. No, uh, now, the piece of land it landed on, the farmer's still alive. I have not spoke to him yet. I spoke to him years ago, and he denied it. Uh, you know, but I've got new information now. I've got a date and everything, so yeah. I will be attempting again. But you'll, what we'll find is I'll probably get nowhere. These people take this information with them to the grave. I don't know why. Uh, and you find that quite a lot in, in, in small, tight-knit communities. And and, you know, and Bempton and Flamborough, they are small, tight-knit commu communities, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
Well, listen, Paul, we really appreciate you coming on the show. Listeners, I really recommend that you get hold of these books. We've only scratched the surface of the stories and the investigations that Paul has actually done in this area. I mean, we've got accounts from trawlermen, accounts from things that have happened out at sea. Everything seems to all be culminating around this area, and it is definitely worthy of more investigation. I think Paul's a man to do it for us. Now, he, as I said at the top of the show is putting himself actually in harm's way by making sure that he is out in this affected area. I know that you like to call it the affected area, Paul. Yeah, yeah. He is out in the affected area at the times at which these things are happening in the hope that he's going to catch something and find more information. And, of course, when he finds that information, he's going to share it with us and we all benefit from it. And maybe, you never know, mankind will benefit from it. But it's all because of Paul being out there doing the work. So... I want to say from our point of view, from myself and Bella's point of view, you know, Paul, we really appreciate you putting yourself on the line there for the furtherance, really, of mankind's knowledge. Thank you very much. And, uh, yeah, any listeners that are interested in contacting me afterwards, contact me via Facebook or my email address, which is paulsinclairilf at gmail.com. And where's the best place to get the books, Paul? The books are available on Amazon, or you can just contact the true... The Truth Proof, I've got a truthproof.webs website. I'm reluctant to call it a website as such, listeners, because me and social media are pretty, we're not very good. <laughs> More into the feet on the ground. But yeah, the books, Amazon, you know, and I suggest people, if they're in, remotely interested, read the reviews and form your own opinions. We are just launching our website now. So if you've got any photographs that you want to share with us, we're happy to put it on there. We're not YouTube. Uh, right. we're, we're happy to put them on there we can also link to your Facebook page as well from our website so again any listeners that want to know more information come to weirdwackywonderful.co.uk as well and we will certainly signpost all of the great information that Paul has from thank there you. Paul once again thank you very much for joining us today really appreciate it thank you thank you well that was pretty interesting what do you think of that there's a lot of stuff going on around there there really is and like I said earlier we only scratch the surface on it when you look at the lights that are seen when you look at the missing people that are seen I mean that harkens back to the whole David Paulides thing with the missing 411 stuff that we spoke about you know on a previous podcast then you've got the cryptids that are seen in that area then you've got the cattle mutilations it's it's so for somebody like me who's geographically challenged, where is this area? So if you imagine the UK, it is on the northern right-hand side, not all the way at the top because that's Scotland. But if you come down probably a quarter of the way down the east coast, then that would be roughly the area. It's North Yorkshire. It's the North Yorkshire, what they call the Wolds. Not Yorkshire puddings. That's where they come from, but no. Mm. Okay. Well, we're not trying to generate a whole bunch of tourism there, but I'd like to go there once just to see what it's like. Yeah, again, I think we need to respect the area there. And I think that, you know, anyone who does have the inclination to go there, I would say hold back. Wait until Paul has maybe come out with something and got maybe the community on his side before flooding the area. Yeah, we don't need another Roswell, do we? Exactly. That's (laughs) That's the last thing they want. And the thing is, is that if people do go there and they do try and start to do their own little investigations, then that's only going to make people close in a little bit more and make them a little bit more guarded. And then the work that Paul is doing will obviously suffer for that. So I think that we should respect him and and his boundaries and let him do what he's doing up there, and, and then he'll come to us when he's got the information. I agree. Anyway, guys, as we said earlier on, please do go to our website, www.weirdwackywonderful.co.uk. That is where you can listen to all of our past episodes, should you wish to do so. You can also find out about our guests. You can get links to their work. You can see the photos which Paul is going to send through to us. And people that want to tell their friends about it and their friends go, oh, but I don't know how to use this iPhone or... I don't know how to use my galaxy. I don't know how to listen to a podcast. You can just go like, hey, just go to the website, click. You can listen. Don't have to download anything. Yeah, you can stream it right from there. Just click play. That's all you need to do. We've also got a contact form on there. So if you do want to send us any stories or if you've got a guest suggestion, someone who you've heard on another podcast or maybe you've read their book or something like that and you think that maybe we could do with a chat with them and maybe you've got some questions you want to ask them, then send that to us as well via that contact form and we'll get right on it. Thanks again for listening, guys. We really do appreciate it. And we will see you on the next edition of the Weird, Wacky, Wonderful Stories podcast. But until then, please do stay weird, weird, wacky, wacky and and wonderful. wonderful. Bye.
You always have to get your little last buy-in, don't you? I've got the last word this time. <laughs>